Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, March 1st. I'm Shelby Herbert. With no local buyers in Nome or the Norton Sound region to purchase Norton Sound Red King Crab from this winter's harvest, commercial fishermen are needing to get creative to sell their catch. Greg Knight reports in Nome. Seven commercial fishers are registered to catch and sell Norton Sound Red King Crab right now. That's according to Jim Menard, the Arctic Area Manager for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Starting in uh, 2020, there was no buyer, so there's been no buyer for the last four years for the commercial winter fishery. So, and for crabbers to sell, they have to be a catcher-seller then or a direct marketer, and then they can sell the crab. Adam Bachman is a commercial fisherman based in Nome. He says being a catcher-seller can reduce the amount of crab you catch per day, unless you have a buyer already lined up. It adds a lot of complexity to fishing for king crab. We have to find buyers before we catch the crab and or figure out how to hold the crab until we can sell them. You can put them in holding pots and stuff like that, but it really limits your ability to prosecute a fishery. It kind of puts you into the uh, tens and twenties area where you can catch ten or twenty crab and sell those pretty much easily a day, or you have to, you know, figure out how to ship them and keep them alive. Because crab is sold live and not dead like salmon or other seafood, Menard says there are fewer restrictions on how catchers can sell their haul. It's much easier uh, to sell uh, crab as a catcher seller than it would be, say, during salmon season when the fish are dead and you're restricted to selling from your boat or getting a special thing from DEC. Menard added that despite the lack of a buyer in Norton Sound, the number of winter crabbers has seen an increase over the past four years. In 2020, the first year there was no buyer for the winter crab fishery, only two registered. The next year, 2021, five registered, and then uh, last year, 2022, the winter fishery, we had uh, nine registered. And at this point in the 2023 season, we have seven registered. Bachman says he is working on a process to get his crab to the Anchorage market as fresh but cooked. Crab is very valuable and it's a premium product. And when you ship 100 crab to Anchorage alive, if there's not somebody on the other end that can put them into live tanks, it's a ticking time bomb, if you will. According to Menard, a large percentage of the guideline harvest level will be caught in the spring. The uh, guideline harvest level for the winter fishery is 31,400 pounds. Historically, about 70% of the crab caught in the winter commercial fishery are caught in March and April, so in the spring months. And we'll see if we get uh, a few more that are going to register uh, later in the season. ADF&G estimates legal male biomass of Norton Sound Red King Crab to be 4.36 million pounds. Bachman says keeping the fishery healthy is of the utmost importance, whether for commercial or subsistence uses. We as a user group, subsistence, commercial, all of us need to stay vigilant on keeping this crab population as healthy as possible. Western Alaskans outside of Nome who are interested in commercial crabbing can call their fish and game office to receive crab pot tags before crabbing. Reporting in Nome, I'm Greg Knight. For the first time in four years, a group of farmers, scientists, and entrepreneurs gathered in person for the Southeast Alaska Farmers Summit. Every other year, a different community hosts the event. This weekend, 
it was Petersburg's term. This weekend, pardon me, it was Petersburg's turn. I went to the conference and dug into the sustainability issues on participants' minds. The Southeast Alaska Farmers Summit began in Petersburg in 2015. It was a two-day event with about 35 participants. Nearly a decade later, about 100 participants from all over the United States crowd the aisles of the Petersburg Lutheran Church. Countless others attend virtually on Zoom. They've come to share resources and best practices on farming in the cold, rainy climate of southeast Alaska. Rain-loving slugs are especially challenging for regional growers. Casey Reichardt is a researcher from Oregon State University. His Friday slug identification workshop brought in a huge crowd. I recently found out that slug slime is a liquid crystal. And so is human mucus. And my next thought was, what then is a booger? <laughs> I caught attendees Jonathan Rubo and Lucetto Hagen right before the second slog presentation. It was their first time in Petersburg. Rubo said the gathering presented him with a lot of food for thought on composting. So my big challenge is, is tapping into the waste stream as a resource to provide for farmers and growers. And so, you know, trying to divert that waste from the landfills, transfer stations, and make that available for locals. O'Hagan works as a commercial lender, but aspires to become a farmer herself. She says she learned about how challenging it is for Southeast Alaska farmers to secure the funds to build their business. And from the family farm perspective, it's probably financing streams. So just letting people know that credit unions are available to help them with financing needs. Uyanga Angie Mendvayar traveled to Petersburg from Juneau for the conference. She stayed in one of the cannery bunkhouses for the weekend. I guess I'm just getting a first-hand rural Alaska experience. Yeah. yeah. I, like for two nights, I couldn't yeah. get good sleep because there's no heat. Menbayar came for the mushrooms. She has her own startup for mushroom products and gave a presentation on a recent USDA mushroom study. Yeah, I had a little mushroom farm, but my cultivator is moving out of state, so um, my goal is how can I bring more access to these local foods? And can I make them into something that they can eat? Or I make um, reishi treats and reishi rooibos drinks and like just being creative with what I can make with small farm products. For over a decade, Menbayer has worked in environmental research and activism. She's interested in replacing single-use packaging and other types of plastic waste with biodegradable materials derived from mushrooms. She says Southeast Alaska is a particularly exciting place to explore these ideas. You know, all these trees and forests we see, we live in a fungal heaven. Their roots are connected with mycelium through mycorrhizal network. We don't see them in our eyes, but it's everywhere. The spores are in the air, you know, the roots are connecting underneath us. So when you walk into the forest, it feels you through their like nervous system, which is fungus. And mushroom gives me hope. The Southeast Alaska Farmers Summit was funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and dozens of regional nonprofits. The next summit won't be held for at least another year. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert.
Wrangell's popular community pool has been empty and dry since late November. It's a problem with the foundation. Although the borough has wanted to fix it, they've had a difficulty finding a contractor to do the work. Sage Smiley reports from Wrangell. Quite different than when it's full, isn't it? Kate Thomas is Wrangell's outgoing Parks and Rec director. We're standing in the second lane of the shallow end where sometimes we lap swim together (laughs) Uh, when there's water in the pool. Wrangell's community swimming pool is bone dry, just an expanse of tiny blue and white tiles. And you can see this fissure uh, sort of right along this edge. And you can see where the old tile from right here to right here was replaced in 2014. And you can kind of start to see where the uh, break in the tile starts to run along the width of the pool. And this was The pool maintenance project was originally scheduled to last about a month and a half from after Thanksgiving to early January. One major goal was to replace a valve that can only be done when the pool is empty, and the pool hadn't been drained since 2018. Another goal was to repair some tile. But Thomas says draining the pool became a bigger priority last year when they noticed they were losing water. It went from the normal 500 gallons per day to 1,000 in late summer to 3,000 gallons of water lost in September. To investigate, a diver squirted dye around vulnerable parts of the pool floor to see if they could find a leak. And they did. And the concern is that when the water leaches through the foundation and goes into the substrate that the pool is sitting on, that you can wash out the fines um, on the sediment and rock and, and create an unstable ground. And if you have unstable ground, you could have a collapse of the pool's foundation, which would be a catastrophic repair, maybe one that we would or wouldn't able to afford at this time. The break is a fracture in the concrete foundation of the pool just before the floor takes a dip toward the deep end. And as Thomas mentioned, the problem isn't an entirely new one. Because the concrete has needed repairs in that exact spot before, Thomas says the Parks and Rec Department wants a long-term, more in-depth fix, which would include breaking apart some of the concrete floor and rebuilding it. It should extend the life of the pool by 15 or 20 years. The problem is, because it's a more involved project, Parks and Rec's maintenance crew can't do it themselves. After putting out a request for contractor bids twice, Parks and Rec came up empty. But also, there's just a finite amount of people on the island, and... Everyone's experiencing high volumes of need and low workforce to do things. So there's just not always availability to do everything at one time. And that's not just Wrangell. That's Southeast. That's Alaska. That's the nation right now. Parks and Rec has pivoted to a different type of contract that would pay a contractor for their time and materials rather than acquire a lump sum bid. And they've pre-ordered the materials with the hope that it will help secure a contractor and shorten the remaining time the pool is closed. But there isn't a timeline yet. I have felt the weight of changing the date routinely and creating expectations, dreams, hopes to get back into the pool and then having to extend that further. And I think that's pretty disappointing for folks. Thomas says that the bright side of the extended closure is it's giving Parks and Rec's maintenance team a chance to check off a huge amount of smaller maintenance tasks on their list. That includes everything from circulating pumps and replacing piping to doing the once-a-decade replacement of the sand filters that keep the water clean to maintenance on the systems that heat the water and monitor chemicals to regrouting the entire basin of the pool. If we didn't extend the project this far, 
there's no way we would have tackled all of this stuff. It takes weeks to regrout the entire swimming pool. And the grout is the first layer of protectant to the substrate, the integrity below the tile, and then the concrete and so on and so forth. So I just can keep on grouting until this puppy's done. There's certainly an impact to Parks and Rec's revenues with the extended closure, although Thomas says she doesn't have exact numbers. But she says that's not her primary worry. Take the money out of the equation. It's affecting people's physical health, mental health, and sense of community because they don't have their congregate setting to engage uh, with with their friends and with the staff here, whether that's in the arthritis class or the a water aerobics class or swim club or our open swims that have dozens and dozens of kids and families that come in. All those folks are probably suffering more than anybody else. But like the maintenance crew trying to tackle every task in the interim, Parks and Rec has tried to make programming on land a priority during the extended pool closure. The community gym has shuttled through hundreds of participants for archery, pickleball, and pop-up classes to keep their bodies moving. Eventually, swimming will once again be an option. After construction is done, it'll take about a week for the pool to be filled back up, properly treated with chemicals, and warmed up to swimming temperature. In Wrangell... I'm Sage Smiley. The National Weather Service has issued a high wind warning for Kodiak Island through Thursday morning. According to the forecast, the island will see winds of 40 to 15 mi- 50 miles per hour with gusts up to 80 miles per hour. The gale warning is also in effect for mariners on both the east and west sides of the island until Thursday morning. Nicole Sprinkles is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Anchorage. This low is basically forming near Kodiak Island, and it is deepening quickly um, near Kodiak Island and is actually pulling cold air from the north. So a lot of that cold air advection is just causing these strong winds to develop. Parts of the Kenai Peninsula will see up to 18 inches of snow from the storm, according to Sprinkles. Kodiak won't see much new snow, but residents should be wary of the possibility of loose debris, property damage, and power outages from the windstorm. Sprinkles says residents should also limit their travel due to low visibility. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert. Coming up, local and marine weather 